me invite your attention to Revelation chapters 4 and 5. This morning I want to address the future of worship at Beach Haven Baptist Church. And I want to begin by making what should not be a surprising statement, but is a profoundly dogmatic statement from which you and I will not flee. And that is, worship in the Christian church is for the Lord Jesus Christ. Thomas K. Beecher was the lesser-known brother of Henry Ward Beecher, the famous preacher of the 19th century in Boston. There were many that would come from around the nation and sometimes internationally to just come to hear Henry Ward Beecher preach. And so when he was out of the pulpit, he did not announce that he was going to be gone because the attendance would slip. He had his brother fill the pulpit for him one Sunday, and when that was announced, right before he got up, people began to leave because Henry was not preaching. And Thomas got up and immediately said, All those who are here to worship Henry Ward Beecher may leave. All those who are here to worship Jesus Christ may remain. And I'd like to shout that to the whole earth. Worship is for Jesus Christ. Now that assumes that the Lord Jesus is here among us. It's like the little boy was praying one night after, uh, on Sunday night after worship Sunday morning. He prayed and his father overheard him. Dear God, we had a great day in church. You should have been there. <laughs> and too often, as Vance Havner said, we're more cognizant of the absence of some people than the presence of the Lord in worship. This text is going to help us an awful lot with that. The vision statement that I have been proposing for the last several weeks will appear here, and it does relate to worship. Beach Haven seeks to follow Jesus Christ as Lord as a global church, a mixture of global and local. Since our founding, we've had a dynamic, strong and burgeoning commitment to international missions. We'll have to apply some of that locally as a global church has local missions commitments as well. Winning, baptizing, and training what I'm calling great commissionaries, those who have a heart and practice of the Great Commission as defined in Scripture. From all nations, peoples, tribes, and languages of the Athens-Clark County region. We may simplify that some, but as a teaching tool, I want to use this for the next several weeks and let us reflect on it for the next number of months. In order to create that, we have got to understand God expects the local church to be a recreation of the scene in heaven of Revelation 4 and 5 and Revelation 7. And this is where this language comes from. Nations, tribes, peoples, and languages. That actually comes from the apocalypse. Revelation 4 and 5 and Revelation chapter 7. And so worship is to look an awful lot like that scene before the throne. It's to sound like it, feel like it, smell like it, and it is to look like it. And I believe that's where the heart of God the Father is. Now, there's some places on the earth where they could not do that. Their culture is so monolithic, there'd be no possibility of pulling that off. But that's not where we are. We are in a perfect position and location to pull this off. We are. Now, in Revelation 4 and 5, we find a hinge text. The first three chapters are what was, or chapter one is what was. Chapters two and three are what is in John's day. Chapters four and on happen to be what will be. Revelation 1, 17 and 19 form that outline. 
Beginning in chapter 4, though, we find what will be, but this is a hinged text that really gives the basis for what happens in chapters 6 through 18. So chapters 4 and 5 are a future event where Jesus Christ pulls something off wonderful. Now, you thought that the crucifixion and resurrection were impressive. Well, I've got news for you. There's more like that to come. And then beginning in chapter 6 through chapter 18, the Lord Jesus comes and takes possession of the whole earth. He owns it, but then He comes to take possession. But before He does that in chapter 19, He cleanses the earth. He takes His property and cleanses it from all pollution and impurity. And His right to do that is explained in chapters 4 and 5. The chapter division here in chapter 5 is somewhat disruptive. It wasn't part of the original text. Uh, they, they did a good job, for the most part, with the versification and chapter divisions in the Bible. But chapter, the placement of chapter 5 is a bit disruptive. Chapter 4 should have continued with chapter 5, verse 1. But nevertheless, we find something remarkable take place here. And what I'd like to do this morning is first analyze the text, and then secondly, I'd like to apply the text. Let's, let's analyze the text. Chapter 4 is one concept, and chapter 5 is another concept. In chapter 4, heaven worships the Creator on the throne. In fact, 22% of the uses of the word throne in the Bible appear in Revelation. Almost one, more than one out of five. And then 12% of all the uses of the word throne in the Bible appear in these two chapters. We are in a throne room here in this text. So heaven worships the Creator on the throne is chapter 4. And, and there are several things that prompt the worship here. First, the Creator's enthronement prompts worship. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, we find that there. Now, in verse 1, we find that He's exalted. After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you things which must take place after this. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven. He's enthroned. But that's not all. He's also seated. It says, A throne set in heaven, and one who sat on the throne. When David's son Absalom pulled off the coup and chased David out of Jerusalem, David was not seated on the throne he couldn't afford to and keep his life. This God sits on the throne and stays there never to be unseated. He will never face a coup. He'll never be intimidated or bullied by anyone or threatened. He reigns and rules in complete omnipotence, all power, and no one challenges His rule. There's no need to run. In verse 3, he has a radiant enthronement. He who sat there was like jasper, a red stone, and sardius stone, a pure white stone, which happened to be a couple of stones on the breastplate of the priest. And he was that way in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. The first appearance of the rainbow was after the flood when God, the warrior, took his bow and hung it in the sky, never to fire the arrows of judgment against the earth in a flood like that again. And that same throne of peace and grace appears around this throne. Those who meet Him on the throne are only those who have met His grace. They worship Him because 
of his enthronement. But there's not only his enthronement, but his environment. His environment prompts worship in verses 4 through 8. It's a royal environment. Look at verse 4. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and on the thrones I saw 24 elders. There are 12 different interpretations of this. I think Revelation would point us to the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel, and as Jesus promised in Matthew 19, the 12 apostles, representative of all of the redeemed, both the Old Testament and the new. And so there are elders here who are sitting clothed in white robes. Even the elders need to be purified by the blood of Christ. And they have crowns of gold on their heads, is what they have. In other words, it's a royal thing. They, they've received a great reward in Jesus Christ. They've been cleansed from their sin. And now, by the blood, they are worthy to wear a throne representative of all the redeemed of the earth. This is a royal environment. Now, usually elders aren't known for giving glory to anyone. They usually receive glory. But in this text, they exalt the God on the throne. It's also a natural environment. Verse 5, and this recalls the scene at the Mount Sinai when God gave the Ten Commandments. And from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, voices. It's precisely what happened when God gave the Ten Commandments in Exodus 19 and Moses rehearsed in Deuteronomy chapter 5. There's a storm brewing and it breaks loose on the earth in chapter 6 when Jesus Christ begins to cleanse His earth of all sinfulness, wickedness, and iniquity. And then there's fire, seven lamps of fire, which were burning before the throne. Complete fire that are about to be cast upon the earth. An awful lot of fire interaction between heaven and earth and revelation, and God's about to cleanse it with fire. And these are the seven spirits of God. Not that there are seven Holy Spirits, but the number seven is complete. An entire week is seven days, and the Holy Spirit is completely God. There's a great storm brewing, and it's powerful and it's awesome. Enough to cleanse the earth of all impurity to make it fit for the King, the Lord Jesus Christ. A number of years ago, there was a tornado that broke through Wichita Falls, uh, Texas. It was so powerful, it picked up some pine straw and pierced a telephone pole. And that's, what, that's the kind of power that you find and the force that you find in this text. And then, verses 6 through 8 is a text that you may not be able to comprehend. There are many mentions of creatures here, most likely angels. But I don't know that we're intended to understand everything that takes place here as much as we are to feel it and be overwhelmed by it. Verse 6, Before the throne there was a sea of glass like crystal. Everyone likes crystal. Well, in heaven they make seas of it. And in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. And the second living creature like a calf. Third living creature like the face of a man. And the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. Four major divisions of the animal kingdom. And the four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within, and they do not rest day or night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Words escape me to describe this. It is awesome. That's overused. I wish it wasn't because it's a great word. It is splendid. It is overwhelming. It is breathtaking. It is tremendous. It escapes our tongues to describe. 
So the Creator's environment prompts worship, and then the Creator's essence prompts worship. The rest of verse 8, on to verse 11. Holy, holy, holy. A Jewish rabbi read this, and the three mentions of the word holy convinced him of the biblical doctrine of the Trinity. It's enough to say holy once, but he surmised that these angels said it three times in order to declare the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So the essence of God is Trinity. There's a marvelous unity there that should be in worship as well. So, and and by the way, that's the problem with some rulers. Some who have authority and power are too wicked to have it, and they can't be trusted. But this God is because He's holy three times over. And then another problem with rulers is that even the good they want to do, they often don't have the power to accomplish it or implement it. But this God is Lord God Almighty. He can do any good that He prefers to do. And then the problem also with rulers is that the bad ones live too long and the good ones die too young, like Josiah. But this is the one who was and is and is to come. So we have a God of Trinity. We have a God of, that's almighty. And we have a God of eternity. No wonder they worship His name. So where the Creator sits, what He has made of His home, in His very essence prompts worship. And we haven't even gotten to Jesus Christ yet. So tremble before Him all the earth and declare your Maker's praise. Anything less is not worthy of Him. And so heaven worships the Creator on the throne, but second, heaven worships the Redeemer in the throne. And I didn't misspeak. We'll see that in just a moment. Heaven worships the Redeemer in the throne in chapter 5. There's an there's a enormous shift that takes place here in the text. Worship that was given to the Creator now shifts to someone else. And it does so because of redemption. And that's the topic of this text. From verses 1 through 4, we find the need for redemption. Redemption was a common word that Jews used amongst themselves. John would know something about it. Israel would. The Jewish members of the congregations reading this would know. Land was supposed to stay in families throughout their entire existence. If they lost it, a family member could come and repurchase it and deliver it. But they would have a title deed to do so. In the garden, Jesus Christ lost legally the land called the earth. It was transferred to the God of this age, the God of the world, the prince of the power of the air, who is He went to the cross to repurchase it. Now he intends to take possession of his land, and he wants to clear it first. But what right does he have to do that? Chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. It's a legal and royal document, certified by the court. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. So I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. There's no one there to take possession of the earth legally. And so there's great weeping that takes place in heaven, especially with John. 
That means wickedness continues. That means impurity continues. That means sin is exalted in the earth. And rebellion is crowned as good. And good is denounced as rebellion in the earth. That is the need for redemption. But then it goes on. Chapter 5, verse number 5. Everything turns and breaks loose. But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders, in the center of it all, stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all of the earth. Then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. Judah was the ruling tribe of Israel, and the lion was the ruler of the rulers. And he appears here in this text. Now you might expect the text next to call him the branch of David. David is the tree, and out of that comes this person, the branch. But that's not what it says in verse 5, does it? Isaiah 11.1 calls him the branch. But Revelation 5.5 places him somewhere else on this tree, doesn't it? Not as David's branch, but chapter 5, verse 5, as David's what? Root. In other words, he's not only the human offspring of David, he is the divine source of David's family. He is man and he is God. He's the root of David. And then he prevailed. That is a point in time that's in the aorist tense. He prevailed, most likely in his resurrection, ascension, and coronation, to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. In other words, he has the legal right to unfurl the future of all the earth and all the universe because it belongs to him. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and the four living creatures, in the midst of the elders stood a lamb, a paschal lamb, the lamb that was slain on Yom Kippur in Leviticus 16. Well, isn't that an amazing thing? To appear in the apocalypse, in a vision of glory, in a vision of victory, he appears as a lamb slain. This is a grotesque picture. If he's slain, that means he appears as if his throat has been cut. And in glory, the Lamb still bears the marks of crucifixion and execution at the cross. If you wonder who Jesus is in the next life, look for the wounds. That's how Thomas identified him. He's a lamb as though he had been slain. And then the unusual reference, he had seven horns. Horns, a symbol of authority. Seven, the number of completeness. He's got all power. In other words, for everything that unfolds in the future, he is completely adequate for every occasion. He's enough. And then he has seven eyes. Eyes, knowledge, the ability to see. Seven, complete. He's got complete knowledge of everything, even our worship. Then he came and did what makes entirely good sense. He took the scroll. No one else was worthy but him. And then everything breaks loose into three psalms. From verse 8 down to verse 13. The first song is found in verse 9. You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on earth. 
The second song in verse 12. They said with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Seven great complete attributes of Almighty God transferred to the Lamb without hiccup, without hesitation, without reservation. He is exalted just like Almighty God is. And then the third song in verse 13. Blessing and honor and glory and power be to Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. Amen. Worship is for Jesus Christ. If He's pleased, very little else matters in worship. Jesus is the center of our worship. This is the longest passage I know of in the Bible about worship. I think it's definitive. And our attempt at Beach Haven Baptist Church is to recreate this similar scene in every one of our worship services. Well, how can we do it? Well, I want to continue with how great commissionaries worship, briefly. How would great commissionaries worship? Well, first, they worship with submission. Chapter 5, verse 8. When he'd taken the scroll, the four living creatures and 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. That's what you did as a ruler before a superior king and ruler. You would fall down. Make yourself completely vulnerable. And in some cases, the ruling king, the superior king, would put his feet upon your neck, indicating your submission and his superiority. And that is precisely what God the Father is doing for His Son. He said to His Son, Psalms 110 verse 1, the most often quoted verse from the Old Testament in the New, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. That's precisely what He's doing. That is something that must take place here every Sunday. In every quiet time, every prayer time, every corporate worship time, we submit to Him. Real worship implies trust in Him enough to surrender. And where there is no surrender, there is no real worship. Because Jesus is not put in His appropriate place, nor are we without surrender. We can surrender before worship to prepare ourselves for worship. We can do that. I hope you'll take time every Saturday evening and every Sunday morning to surrender to God in worship. And then when prompted during the worship service, do it. And then that's why we offer a public invitation to give people the opportunity to surrender to the Lord. Many of you will do that in your seats this morning. Some of you will need to come forward and meet a staff member at the end. And we want to help you with your spiritual needs. But that's why we do that. There's no magic to walking down an aisle. It's just a practical thing where we can give you help now for your spiritual need. That's why we've got to be careful with how we handle worship. We surrender and submit in worship. Real worship implies trust in God enough to surrender and to submit. But that's not all. Great commissionaries worship with submission, but they also worship with songs. Chapter 5, verse 9 makes it clear the kind of music that we sing. They sang a new song saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. Several items about these songs here. One, they're new songs. Do you know the human heart needs newness and freshness and things that are unfamiliar? Do you know why? Because our sinful hearts have a way of taking for granted that which is familiar. We often do. 
Now, some of the things that are familiar and old can be a great big help too. Don't misunderstand me. But when it comes to worship, we need to be provoked and prompted because our hearts do not drift towards intensity and zeal and submission to the Lord. They drift away from it. And so new songs are profoundly important because the human heart needs it. If we keep singing the same thing over and over again, it's very likely we will disengage our mind and disengage our heart and there'll be a great big distance between our lips and hearts and heaven will be offended and our worship will be polluted with insincerity and such cannot be before God. New songs. New songs. But that's not all. They also worship with salvation songs. It's an unfortunate thing but many churches and denominations have removed the subjects of chapter 5 verse 9. Whole denomination publishing houses have erased from their hymn books songs about the blood and redemption and the cross and the death of Jesus. And they have ridiculed it and sneered it, saying, we don't need that old-fashioned bloody religion. Well, I've got news for that crowd. Heaven is drenched in the blood of the Lamb. And the Father is not satisfied until the whole earth exalts Jesus because of His death on the cross. Now, there are some in Bible-believing churches who dismiss this and whine and complain, saying, let's move beyond the doctrine of salvation. And I'm telling you, God won't let us. He continues to put forth the glories of the death of Christ in His gospel. You were slain and redeemed us to God by your blood. Heaven's going to be a great big disappointment to some of these. Because it's drenched in blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And wise is the one who knows why. But then they worship with missionary songs in chapter 5, verse 9. Out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. The person that does not love and does not possess a missionary heart is going to be wildly out of place in worship at Beach Haven and in heaven. If they make it. Charles Spurgeon said, Every... Every person on the earth is either a missionary or a mission field. And I think he's right. And this is reflected in the worship here in this text. And it's not that the hymn was prescribed and given to them on a piece of paper or on a screen in heaven and they sang from it. It burst forth from their heart. They couldn't help themselves. So... They worship with missionary songs and then they worship. Look at chapter 5, verse 12. I'm not making this up. They worship with loud songs. Saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Now this does not imply damage to hearing. And it doesn't imply that music is greater than the lyrics. Not saying that at all. But ladies and gentlemen, they can't help themselves to shout the name and the praises of the Lord. And I dare say, this crowd here in Revelation 5 can compete with anything that happens in Sanford or Neyland Stadium. Because Christ has been lifted up and slain and is redeemed and He has saved. A.W. Tozer said, I can safely say that any man or woman on this earth who's bored and turned off by worship is not ready for heaven. And I think he's right. It may be overused, but Soren Kierkegaard a number of years ago, several decades ago in fact, said that so often we perceive worship like this, that God is watching us and those of us on the platform perform for those in the congregation. 
Now the word perform is okay to use. It appears often in the Old Testament for worship, but I'm talking about something like a secular performance. And that the people in the congregation spectate and watch the worship on the platform. He said that's not it at all. Biblical worship and Christian worship is different. Those on the platform prompt the congregation as a choir. And the only audience is on the throne. And we perform for Him and exalt Him. And I think that is a marvelous perspective. Do you know that when we gather in Jesus' name, heaven attends our worship? Now the word loud here deserves some examination. It is used, oh goodness, 22 times in Revelation. It's used 75 times. It's used 75 times in the book of Revelation itself, but translated loud 22 times. And it appears in Exodus 19.16 and Deuteronomy 5.22, where God Himself speaks. I think that this text is constructed to resemble what happened at the giving of the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai, where God spoke with a loud voice. And I suspect that what happens here is that there is a loud voice that shouts the praises of the Lord, Jesus. Because not only are creatures and angels and saints and elders involved in the worship, it seems to me that the Father joins the chorus. And perhaps the Spirit does as well. In other words, the Father, we know the Father in Zephaniah sings over His people. Why wouldn't He sing over the Lord Jesus, His own Son? It is a very godly and worthy thing then to exalt Christ. So, great commissionaries worship with submission and with song. But in the third place, great commissionaries worship in unity. I don't like all the language used for this next story, but for lack of better terms, there was a uh, fellow that visited an asylum for the criminally insane. And there were hundreds of them there, but only three guards. One fellow came up to him and asked him, he said, well, aren't you afraid? Just three of you here on hundreds of the criminally insane? He said, no, crazy people don't unite. <laughs> Indeed, they don't. There is great unity in the text. Revelation chapter 5, beginning of verse 8. Now when he'd taken the scroll, the 24 living creatures, plural, and 24 elders, plural, fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints, plural, and they, plural, sang a new song. You were worthy to, worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and redeemed us, plural, to God by your blood, out of every tribe and tongue and people, plural, and nation, all of those are plural, and have made us, plural, kings and priests to our God, and we, plural, shall reign upon the earth. The Scripture assumes we'll be unified in worship of the Lamb who was slain. Why is unity in worship so important? There are several reasons. One, unity demonstrates the Trinity. Did you know there's no division with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? And whenever we worship in unity, we display the majesty of the unity of the Holy Spirit with the Father and with the Son, and the Father with the Son and the Spirit, and the Son with the Father and the Spirit is what we do in worship. 
Whenever churches are divided in worship, they don't display the Holy Trinity. They display an unholy trinity. Unity is important also because when the people of God worship in unity, they are a force. Everyone is gathered together to lift up the name of Christ with one voice. When they're not unified, they are weakened. When there's unity, it impresses unbelievers with the majesty of God. When it is disunited, it offends the unbeliever. And with unity, we encourage others to worship. With disunity, it discourages others to worship. A father pointed his son to some sticks that he wanted him to break for the fireplace. They were too large to go in. And so the son took the bundle of sticks which were tied up and tried to break them. He took them as a bundle and set them against a brick wall and tried to stomp through them, and that wouldn't help. He tried to break them over his leg. He just bruised his knee. He got discouraged. His father came out to help him, and he untied the sticks and broke them one by one. And beloved, the same happens with the people of God when they're divided from one another. It's easy to break. But a three, uh, but a three, three cords together are not easily broken from one another. So the truth is, we need to be unified together in worship. We need to submit and surrender, be entirely sincere in worship, and quite frankly, When the church gathers in worship together, everyone needs to be present on Sunday mornings and unless providentially hindered, on Wednesday nights as well. Worship reveals more about a man or a woman than just about any other act. You can tell an awful lot about your heart and soul by how you worship. And that's why the Lord through Isaiah complained in Isaiah 29, 13, which is what Jesus quoted in Matthew 15. These people draw near to me with their mouth, and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Worship, worship of Christ deserves submission. It deserves song. It deserves sincerity. And it deserves unity. Where it's lacking, redemption may be lacking. It's a great sin against the Trinity to worship without these. It's a great pleasure to the Trinity to worship with them. And so, Inadequate worship is a sin from which sinners like us need forgiveness. Aren't you glad for verse 9 then? You were slain and redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. That includes not only people engaging in fake worship and Christian worship, that also includes the pagans, the heathen, the idolaters. God is able to forgive any worship sin by any person who has sinned against Him in Worship, because Christ was slain. What do we do? We repent and we trust His gospel. We repent, that means we condemn ourselves and we're repulsed with our worship enough to turn away from it and turn away from all sin. And we trust only the hope of Jesus Christ in His resurrection and in His death for the forgiveness of sins. We narrow our hope to Him and Him alone. What we're going to do in just a moment is that we're going to sing a song. And as we sing, I want to ask you to step out from where you are and meet a staff member here in the front and share your spiritual need. If you need to come to know Christ, if you need to be forgiven for inadequate worship of the Lamb who was slain, you come. Maybe God has some other decision He wants you to make today. We want to help you with that. Let's pray together and we're going to ask you to come. Father, would you do a neat work in hearts and lives today and help us to repent and trust you where necessary. 
do a marvelous work that we might be the best worshipers that have ever been known, especially in this place, to please the Lord Jesus Christ and to honor Him mightily. We pray that your Spirit would work for His interest, that you would drive those home to us today as we commit ourselves to you now. Now Again, let me say again in case you've forgotten, we're going to sing a song, and as we sing, we're going to ask you to come. Staff will be here in the front to receive you and to help you with your spiritual need. Would you come? Quickly stand with me. I'm going to finish my prayer. We're going to ask you to come. Father, thank you again for hearing our worship today. And may our worship now in this time of surrender be worthy of you. In Jesus' name we pray and for his sake. Amen. You come.